And now I want to, uh, I want to have a word of prayer together. I'm not quite to the point where I can kneel down. I'm, I, I have a difficult time getting back up at the moment for when I kneel down, and I'm just don't have the strength just yet. So uh, I'll ask. A, Ask, well, at least today I don't, I should say. At least today I don't, for some reason. So I'll ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray now. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, that you so loved the world that you gave Jesus. It wasn't an easy decision for you. Like it would be an easy decision for us to give up our only child. But we thank you from the bottom of our hearts and we praise your holy name for that kind of love towards us. Who at one time in our life had a hatred for you. But because of Jesus we love you, Lord, and we we thank you so much. We thank you for providing for all our needs, not just the the eternal life through Christ, but our our, uh, temporary needs while we're here and for being that beacon of hope for us when we go through really tough times and for assuring us through your promises that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we thank you for this holy Sabbath day as we've gathered together to worship thee. We pray that it is acceptable unto thee. That we praise your name and we study your word. We've come together to learn to learn more about Thee and Your love and Your kingdom. And to learn about how to work together in unity and to have a love for one another. We wish to speak to these things today, Lord. So I pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us. Give me understanding as I speak to the flock. Also be with those, Lord, who are hearing me. I pray for them to open their hearts and their minds. May we all come to a knowledge of the truth and make it effective in our life. And Lord, we pray that you'll forgive us our sins. We claim the blood that Jesus shed there at Calvary. We pray that we may never sin again. Give us the strength, courage, and hope to do just that. And so, Lord, thank you for hearing this prayer that we may gain a taste of heaven today. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen. This is part two of the uh, message I started a month ago, <laughs> before the incident. Uh, is entitled, The Home and the Church. Uh, part two, there are two more parts to this as we kind of methodically go through comparing uh, the home and the church and getting an idea from the Christian home uh, how the church is to be ordered, organized in unity. And uh, I think we've learned quite a lot, friends. Uh, I will say, you may, uh, if you haven't been taking notes, um, you may want to take notes, especially those who, who want to be better organized and, and uh, to into a church, not just to, to organize your family as well. But we're going to learn some things here, a little bit more specifics as we go along uh, here in part two, especially in part three and four. Uh, we're going to get into some greater detail in the organization of the church. And uh, because God blesses order, doesn't he? We've learned this. And we want to be in order, as good an order as we can be. You know, I was... Reading, I like history. I was reading about the Advent movement, you know, the great second Advent movement. And I was really amazed. Something that amazed me about them uh, during this movement was the unity that they had in preparing themselves and others for that day when they thought Jesus was going to return. Now, they weren't completely up to speed on all the doctrines and everything, were they? They were coming out of all the other churches. So there were some differences that were yet to be worked out. But the thing was about it, 
they were willing to follow the truth and have those things worked out for the most part. Um, uh, you had a group there that was willing to do that, which moved into and became the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church eventually. Um, but that's something that amazed me, was that unity they had. They, they had disagreements, like I said, upon some theological matters, but there was a love and there was a unity that existed that really, friends, I envy for all of us today. And, and that was because they loved Jesus with their whole heart. The psalmist says in Psalms 133, verse 1, he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant, he says. And this is what we're striving for. To have a unity. We're learning about that. How do we get this unity? You know, before the early reign of Pentecost was poured out upon the followers of Christ, there was a, a, there was a bond of love and unity between them that welcomed that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? So God's not going to, to pour out His Spirit upon people who have uh, disunion, who, who aren't in unity, who don't have a love for each other. God can't condone sin, can He? He can't bless sin. But they had, they had this love, they had a bond, they had a unity. They had Jesus is what they had. And in Acts 2 and verse 1 it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. And they happened to be in one place at that particular time. They were in one accord. And I'm going to tell you, beloved, that, that we must exhibit that same kind of love and unity that they had if we were to partake of the latter rain. And we pray for the latter rain, don't we? Lots of people in the faith pray for latter rain, but are you one with Jesus and do you have a love for your brother? And I say as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, he said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of Jesus, that you all speak the same thing. And what he means by that is that you'll be agreed and that there be no divisions among you. It's very interesting that that Greek word for divisions is schizmata. And that's where we get the word schizo. <laughs> you know? Another interesting little tidbit about that, you know, when the, the Bible says when Jesus died there on the cross, the, t the veil in the temple was ripped in two. And that word used there for, for division, for ripped, was, was schizo, schizmata, schizo, ripped in two. And Paul's saying, he's beseeching us that there be no divisions among us, no schizmata. but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and he means the same frame of mind, of course, and in the same judgment. We have the same sentiments. But that we come together by the, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus. Let's do it for Jesus. Amen? Now, how do we come to the place where we are in unity, where we're speaking the same thing without divisions, where we're, <laughs> where we're perfectly joined together in the same frame of mind and having the same sentiments? Again, because of Jesus. We must all be one with Jesus. And with Christ comes love and order and unity. Union with Christ will bring union with each other. We've read that before, haven't we? Notice this. From Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 479. It is of the highest importance that the youth understand that Christ's people are to be united in one. For this unity binds men to God by the golden cords of love and lays each one under obligation to work for his fellow men. The cat, now I will say here, 
not only does it bring us under God, obligation to work, but when you have the love of Jesus in your heart, you want to work for your fellow man. You want to save souls for Jesus. She goes on, the captain of our salvation died for the human race that men might be made one with him and with each other. As members of the human family, we are individual parts of one mighty whole. No soul can be made independent of the rest. There is to be no party strife in the family of God. For the well-being of each is the happiness of the whole. And you learn this, I will tell you, one of the best ways to learn this, and this is the way God designed it, is the bond between a husband and a wife in the family. Serving each other's needs. Is that true? That's why Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. You actually do gain more blessings in return than what you give out. No partition walls are to be built up between man and man. Christ as the great center must unite all in one. And He does. He's the the uniter. Let me ask you a question. What united the disciples? What united the early Advent believers? They loved Jesus with their whole hearts. And they were in one accord. They shared the same fundamental beliefs that Jesus taught. They had the same frame of mind. They had the same sentiments of Jesus because He was alive in their hearts. And this led them to organize their efforts in behalf of Christ. And beloved, we have to do the same if we're going to be a part of His people that hasten His coming. From Testimonies to Ministers, page 228. We are living in a time when order, system, and unity of action are most essential. And the truth must bind us together like strong cords in order that no distracted efforts may be witnessed among the workers. What is to bind us together like strong cords? The truth. The truth is. The shaking is caused by testimony of the true witness, is it not? And what, what is it about the shaking that, that completes us in the family? It is a settling in of the truth. And this is what it's talking about. The truth must bind us together like strong cords. You reach a point when your studies, friends, and, and you become settled in the truths that you find in the Bible. And there's nothing that will shake you from those truths. The Sabbath being a cornerstone of the truth that the final test is about. I mean, it's going to be over the Sabbath this year, isn't it? Organization and unity, we find then, begins at home. Begins with the Christian. And in part one... When we were together and we looked at part one of this, we established that the Christian family, one that keeps the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, right? A Christian family, is a church in itself. Don't you notice this short statement again? It's from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 209. Every Christian family is a church in itself. Very simple truth. Every Christian family is a church in itself. That's what it's supposed to be. But it won't be if it's in disunity, if it's disorganized. It's just got the name, you see. So if every Christian family is a church in itself, then we should be able to learn how the church body is to attain order and unity by taking a look at God's family Right? For family, organization, and unity. And I'll tell you, from the, from the beginning of the family unit in Eden, back there in the garden, to the family circle today, we can see the blueprint of God's governing principles. His organization for His church. 
And when we talk about organization, let's get maybe a little bit more specific. What is organization? Well, let's look at uh, what Webster has to say. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines it like this. First definition, they say, is organization is the act or process of forming organs or instruments of action. I like that. Instruments of action. Keep that in the back of your mind. That's what organization is. Second definition they have is the act of forming or arranging the parts of a compound or complex body in a suitable manner for use or service. So you have instruments of action. You form instruments of action for use or service. And later he says, as an army or a government, they're organized. They're organized instruments of action for use of service. The third definition, they said, it's a structure, it's a form, it's, it's a suitable disposition of parts which are to act together in a compound body. So that's what an organization is. You form an organ or organization for action. becomes an instrument of action to use for service. And everyone in that organization acts together for service. So when we start talking about church organizations, this is what we're talking about. Church is to be organized for what? For service. So God formed the... He formed the first family church on earth in Eden. And He organized them as instruments of action or for service. He gave Adam his role, gave him his responsibility, and he gave Eve her role and her responsibility in the family, thus the home church. Right? Now I want to look at something that's used as a definition all the time. It's a good definition. Sometimes it's misused. Okay? In defining who the church is, there's misunderstanding sometimes about what's really being said here. But, but it is a true statement. Acts of the Apostles, page 11. From the beginning, faithful souls have constituted the church on earth. Faithful souls, well, of course. What is a faithful soul? Someone who has Jesus in their heart. That qualifies you to be a member of the family of God in the church. That's not the only definition of the church, though. And that's where some people leave it. And that's a big mistake leads to misunderstandings, actually leads to disunity and disorganization. Anytime you study the Bible, you want to know what the whole Bible says upon a particular topic. Isn't that true? Adam was the head of the family and Eve was his helpmate. We learned that, didn't we? God gave them a work to do and they acted together to do that work. They were organized for action. See? And when Eve wandered away from Adam's side, she took the first steps in perverting God's organization of the family and the church. She then apostatized and let her husband, what, to do the same, didn't she? Even though he made the decision, he did. But they were originally organized as a home and a church to serve God and each other. They were organized for service. And and we've learned this. Why was the church organized? What was its purpose? Let's go back to Acts of the Apostles. Let's look at page 9. I'm starting to lose my voice. Dear Lord, help it to hang in there. The church is God's appointed agency. So, God organized it. He formed it. It's a body. And it's His appointed agency for what? For the salvation of men. That's why we organize, friends. To save souls. That's our purpose. It's not our only purpose. But that's our appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for what? Service. And its mission is to do what? To carry the gospel to the world. You could put a period right there. There's the reason for the church. But she expands upon that. 
She says, From the beginning it has been God's plan that through His church shall be reflected to the world His fullness and His sufficiency. You see, we bring glory to God. That's what the church is to do. It's His appointed agency. Organized for service. Carry the gospel to the world. And it's to reflect to the world the goodness and glory of God. His character. His love. The members of the church, those whom He has called out of darkness into His marvelous light, are to show forth His glory. The church is the repository of the riches of the grace of Christ. I don't know how we miss this. And through the church will eventually be made manifest, even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the final and full display of the love of God. You see, she says there, she says, eventually. You see, this is what Jesus is working towards. This is why the Holy Spirit is striving with our hearts to change us and have a generation, the church, that fully reflects the love of God. Hereby they will know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another, the love that I have for you. And so we look at this and we, we see, well, the family and the church are to be organized for service. To bring Jesus to the world. That they may see Jesus in us. Is there any, any longer, I maybe should say, disunity in heaven? Is there disunity in the Godhead? If you've got a church that's in disunity, is it God's church? Now, there are tares within the church. And we've talked about that before. But I want you to consider these things. Consider these things. Notice this from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 430. Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan. Now, I've shared this with you before, but it's just so good. Established and conducted in accordance with God's plan, see, are among His most effective agencies for the formation of Christian character and for the advancement of His work. And so, you know, like I said in part uh, one, one of the first biblical principles for establishing a home, this is what we learned, and I'm talking about speaking of the husband and wife as an example now. See, Christian homes established and conducted in accordance with God's plan. All right. So, when you establish a home, husband and wife, uh, um, one of the first principles is that the two are to be of the same faith. I can't emphasize that enough. Because if you're not of the same faith, you're starting off with disunity. <laughs> In some regard, aren't you? Now, don't get me wrong, friends. I'm talking about the ideal here. Alright? Talking with the ideal. And God can... God's a miracle worker and God works miracles every day in marriages and brings people into complete unity and stuff. But I'm talking about the ideal here, okay? But there are to be committed Christians, there are to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, thus in union with Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians 6.14 Paul said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? So in this particular case, he's talking about someone who doesn't believe whatsoever marrying a believer. And God says, you're not to do that. You're starting off on the, with, the, with the wrong motivation. It can't be love of God because <laughs> one of you doesn't. Of course, we know Amos 3 and verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? And so the same 
is true for a person who's going to marry Christ, you know, become a member of His body. Do they love Jesus? Do they believe and accept the truth found in the Word of God? Which tells us about Jesus? When a courting couple love each other, when there are, they are of the same faith, when they believe, agree in beliefs and have the, and have the approval of God, well, they get married. They're married to become one body. And the church is to be one body, isn't it? The man Christ, the woman, the church. Paul said in Romans 12, 4, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We're one body. And so, so I'm saying they, they are to be one when you get married. But if you're an unbeliever and you're marrying a believer, you can't be one. And so when you become a member of the body of Christ and you give yourself to Christ, it's like marrying Jesus is what baptism is about. The ceremony. You become a body and a member of the body. And though we may be separated by organizations or groups around the world, when you're in Jesus, you're a member of the family of God. You're in one body. And we learn that this organization is not congregational. We talked about that. You know, becoming an independent atom away from the family. That's not the ideal. Now, many times we wind up starting out as congregational because we... We don't have support, but as we connect with others, other groups, wherever they may be, we can work together until we pull together in a better organization. You see what I'm saying? In the Jewish marriage, the newly wedded couple usually live near the, the groom's parents. Remember, we're looking at family, looking how God's plan was for marriage in the family, gleaning from that how the church is to be organized. And so, in a Jewish marriage, which I brought to you in, in part one, I know it's been a while, friends. But, uh, they usually live near the groom's parents, and it was normal for them to have a, a honeymoon for up to a year. That's where that comes from. You call them newlyweds for about a year. And so, uh, they'd have a honeymoon for up to a year without having to do much work for themselves as the family supported them. This was a time for them to get to know each other, to get their home in order, organized, you see. They were not off on their own like you see today. And so the church is not to be an independent atom off on its own when you plant a church. Say, there you go. It's all, no, we support each other, see. So it's not to be congregational. So this was the point. And we also saw that the church was not to be organized as a hierarchy where the members must answer, you know, to like a, a, a pyramid of bosses that are over all the brethren and over all the work. Boy, the prophet has a lot to say about that and that leads right into kingly power and, and that's not the government of God. Far from it. We know that Jesus is the head of the church, isn't he? And the members are all brethren. Not one being the boss of another. Matthew 23, 8. Jesus said, Be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Speaking to the elders, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 3, Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but be examples to the flock. Example of what? Example of Jesus. Self-sacrificing charitable esteeming others better than yourself and I'll tell you that any organization that is not governed by God's principles of order has become perverted and is actually controlled by the devil the Antichrist that's a member of the Antichrist church and I don't say that lightly friends but we, we tend to live in a society that continually changes definitions of words. 
You know, but truth is true. You may want to change the definition of who Babylon is, but Babylon is Babylon, and it has specific definitions, biblically speaking. And if the shoe fits, it fits. You can use a different name, you can do whatever and change whatever you want to take away the reproach, but the truth is the truth. And sometimes it's harsh. And we need to accept it, though, because it's the truth. Notice this, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, page 180. Organizations, institutions, unless kept by the power of God... What what now? Organizations, institutions, unless kept by what? The power of God will work under Satan's dictation to bring men under the control of men. And fraud and guile will bear the semblance of zeal for the truth and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something, friends. Do you see it today? The professed church has several men in there that may speak the truth at times to draw away. But if they're not kept by the power of God, they're under Satan's dictation. Whatever in our practice is not as open as the day belongs to the methods of the Prince of Evil. There's a principle right there, friends. You know, all these secret committee meetings that, that control everything. That's not from God. That's not God's organization. What form of of organization does God ordain? Well, we get an indicator out of Proverbs. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So we know that Jesus is the head of the church, and we're all brethren. Each member is invested. You see? Has a voice when it comes to church matters. In a multitude of counselors. And, and in speaking about this, I, I want to, you know, so, so many things going on in the professed church when it comes to doctrines. And, and what's happening is that they, they put doctrines up for votes. And I want, to, I want you to remember that doctrinal differences are not decided democratically. That's not how it goes. But they're decided only by the weight of evidence that's found in Scripture. The Bible does not bring confusion. Man brings confusion to the Scriptures. Let's take the Bible as it reads. We also know that the Bible tells us that church organization is not anarchy. Now, it would seem like this would be obvious, but there are a tremendous amount of people who wish to be independent of the body. Kind of a church unto themselves and yet still be deserving of all the blessings God has promised to His people. It reminds me of Isaiah 4 and verse 1. I kind of alluded to that just a moment ago. You know where it says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by Thy name to take away our reproach. And this is kind of a repeat of history or a continuation of history, really. You know, there were many during the early Advent movement who opposed any kind of formal organization because they thought that it would hinder their independence or actually uh, many of them believed that it would lead to spiritual Babylon. They were thinking, well, how did the church fall? How did it become? Well, because they were organized. What kind of sense does that make? But in actuality, these people really endorsed a form of anarchy and not gospel order. James White talked about it. In a footnote on page 12 of a supplement to Experience and Views that was published in 1853, notice what Elder White says. He says, After the time passed in 1844, there was great confusion, and the majority were opposed to any organization holding that it was inconsistent with the perfect liberty of the gospel. It's amazing to me. But he says, Mrs. White was always opposed to every form of fanaticism. He calls it a fanaticism. 
and early announced that some form of organization was necessary to prevent and correct confusion. Few at the present time can appreciate the firmness which was then required to maintain her position against the prevailing anarchy. See, he even referred to it as anarchy. So these people talk about against organizing together, against churches coming together in unity. Now, we know based on the family, when you form a family, the two are to be agreed, right? So you have to be agreed on certain doctrinal things. So I'd say no no organization. When you say no organization at all, that's anarchy. But notice what she says in Testimonies to Ministers, page 26. She says, To provide for the support of the ministry, for carrying the work in new fields, for protecting both the churches and the ministry from unworthy members, that's a big thing, friends, for holding church property, for the publication of the truth through the press, she lists five major things there, and for many other objects, and there are, organization was indispensable. You can't do these things, these five things, and then all these other objects, unless you're organized. And Satan knows what happens when God's people are organized and united. They hasten the Lord's return and His demise. You know, the church is not to have a kingly type power. The only king is Jesus. Amen. But not a ting- kingly type power, you know, being led by men rather than God. And that's So it's not to be hierarchical. That's what hierarchy is. We're all brethren, the Bible says, which means we are each a child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the first steps in gospel order is to understand that, that Jesus is the head and we are all brethren. The group is not to be congregational or hierarchical or an anarchy. The next biblical principle of gospel order is to agree to fundamental beliefs of truth as found in God's Word. There must be unity of faith and doctrine. The church has diversity of personalities, doesn't it? A diversity of individualism, but not diversity of doctrinal beliefs. Truth is truth. God is the author. And if Jesus is the head, we're going to follow the truth, aren't we? For Jesus is the truth. Amen. And the Bible explains itself. And we're to take it as it reads. This is why we get into trouble. We start parsing through it. Higher critical thinking. That's from the devil. Take it as it reads. By the way, what is a doctrine? I better get that as a definition. Some people may not know. What does doctrine mean? Let's go back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Look at how he defines it. It says, says there in Webster, it says, in a general sense, whatever is taught. <laughs> Hence, a principle or position in any science. Whatever is laid down is true by an instructor or master. The doctrines of the gospel are the principles or truths taught by Christ and His apostles. He lays it out right there in the definition. That's what I like so much about the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. He says the doctrines of Plato are the principles which he taught. Hence a doctrine may may be true or false. It may be a mere tenet or opinion. That's where you have to be careful. Yeah, In a general sense, that's what it is. Whatever's taught. But we're concerned with doctrines of the gospel or biblical doctrines, aren't we? So a biblical doctrine would then be principles or truths taught by God, either directly from Himself or His Holy Spirit-inspired representatives. We read in Mark 
chapter 1, verse 22, speaking of Jesus, it said, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Well, what did Jesus teach? He taught the doctrines of what the kingdom of heaven was like and did so as a matter of fact. Thus they were astonished as he did so as if he had authority. He was there. He knew. He understood. But he taught doctrine, truth. And so a church must be united or unified upon biblical doctrines, the doctrines of Christ and that qualifies them as his church. And remember that we must also have, as people, teachable spirits, right? And I've talked about this before, you know, truth is progressive. Jesus is teaching us more and more. He's adding to it. It's kind of like prophecy. You start out with simplicity and then add to it. And it grows and grows and grows until you have a good understanding. So we've got to advance with the light. And as God's people, you're going to follow the head, Jesus. He is the light wherever He leads. And so doctrine, very important. Got to be united upon doctrine, which is the truths that Jesus taught. And it's not decided democratically by vote, but by weight of evidence in God's Word. Now, remember... Before a, a marriage, a Christian woman must know whether the man she's going to marry lines up with the biblical roles of a man, uh, of a husband and a father. These are her fundamental beliefs, so to speak, and vice versa. The same for the man. And the same is true for a person who's going to marry Christ. You know, become a member of his body. There must be agreement of faith and doctrine. Our church takes the Bible as the final authority in deciding the truth. We have a summary beliefs that we do share, but this summary should not be considered a, you know, a complete guide to a Christian's life. It's not. It's just a summary. It's a starting point uh, to lead to a better understanding of truth that you find in God's Word to tell people who we are. And let me share some of the fundamental beliefs I'm talking about that I, we're convinced, not just me, must be agreed upon in order to become a member of the church. And these aren't the only ones, per se, friends. We uh, study with candidates. They make vows based upon the doctrines that we hold before they are covenanted into the church. But here's just some to get you going here. The Godhead. That used not to be an issue, but it is today. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The immutability of the law of God. It hasn't been done away with. The Sabbath truth. The non-immortality of the soul. You know, the truth about hell. No eternally burning hellfire. The nature of Christ. That's a big one. Because it's everything to us. The judgment goes in with the sanctuary message, the three angels message, health reform. These are some very fundamental Bible doctrines that have to be understood and loved, agreed upon, before becoming a member of the church. And, I, and I'm just going to say that th these are fundamental beliefs for God's people to live in this time of present truth. Another fundamental belief that must be understood and agreed upon is who and what is the church of the living God. It's an amazing thing, but it needs to be understood and believed. And this is one belief that has been the most misunderstood, I think, and abused and has caused great division among God's people. Our scripture reading today, Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And I'd mentioned to you before, we'll get into it now, what does 
it mean when it says, in my name? What was Jesus' meaning there? Let me share this with you. It's from Desire of Ages, page 668. In Christ's name means that we are to accept His character, manifest His Spirit, and work His works. The Savior's promise, asking in His name, is given on condition. Oh. Didn't know that, did you? (laughs) It's given on condition. If you love me, He says, keep my commandments. He saves men, not in sin, but from sin, and those who love Him will show their love by obedience. So Jesus is saying that in order to be a member of His church, you must be obedient to His commandments, His doctrines. And what do we have today? There are many open sinners today who believe they are members of Christ's church and they really need to have their eyes open to their true condition. Here's another quote that's been abused way too often. We're talking about defining God's church. Upward look, page 315. It's a great quote, but so many times it's taken out of context and used as a definition. It's misdefined. God has a church. It's not the great cathedral, neither is it the national establishment, neither is it the various denominations. It is the people who love God and keep His commandments. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Where Christ is, even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. For the presence of the high and holy one who inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. Fantastic statement. What happens is, many people take that, they misdefine it to say we don't need to be organized. So you can't go by just one. We've got to get all the definitions of what the Bible says about it in defining God's people, His church. I mean, many people come together every Sabbath and call themselves Sabbath keepers. But are they really coming together in Christ's name and thus really members of His body, the church? I think that's a good question, isn't it? Do we accept His character? Now what she said? In my name. We accept His character, manifest His Spirit, and work His works. Do we manifest His Spirit? Do we work His works? Are we in sin or has Jesus delivered us from sin? Are we organized or are we disorganized? These are things we need to think about, friends. Why are we still here? Why hasn't Jesus come? Well, there are a number of reasons for that I I could bring up, but... We're not as organized. He wants to pour out blessings upon He wants to pour out the latter rain upon His people. Why hasn't He? Good question. Big question. It's so important to understand who the church is. Now, I'm talking about the church militant, remember. That's what we are right now. I'm going to list the ten character traits that we discovered before, just as a reminder. Let's compare these traits to what we, we just read from Inspiration. See, there's more to the definition of who and what the church is than what the, I just read and what a number of people use. First, it'll have the nature of Christ. And what was the nature of Christ? He was a human and He was divine. He was combined. So it's going to be made up of born-again believers, except for the tares that have hidden sins. And, you know, Not open sinners, but the tares, and we talked about that. I'll remind you, upward look, page 80 says, the Israel of God are those who are converted. So that's one thing. The church will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we went through all of these, friends, before. Hoping to get the uh, YouTube channel all updated with all these. Uh, The church is a light that leads the way to the head, which is Jesus. The church will stand upon the foundation of truth, especially present truth. And our present truth is Revelation 14 and the three angels' messages. Uh, The church will be vibrant and living in Christ. It's going to be a true fellowship of believers. The church is a spiritual house with Christ as the head, not a man-made organizational structure with man at the head. 
or a hierarchy, or as we learned before, a congregation or anarchy. That's not Christ's church. It'll be of the seed of Abraham, not of Ishmael, which means it's going to be faith-based and covenant-keeping, and the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant-keeping. It'll keep the law of God, which means it's going to be obedient. We just read that emphasis again. It'll have the faith of Jesus, which means it's going to be faithful. Rather, it's going to get to a point, friends, where everyone in God's church, that last generation, just before He comes, would rather die than sin. And it'll have godly love and unity, because Jesus is alive in the heart. Now, these are fundamental biblical truths describing whom the church, the body of Christ, represents. And I believe this must be understood or you may be deceived and become a member of a fallen organization or form an organization that has a faulty foundation. So it's important to understand. It's very important. Probably one of the key doctrines to completely understand to have an understanding of anyway. So, let's say that you have a group of people who come together in Christ's name, who share the same faith and doctrine, who understand who and what the church is and want to organize to serve the Lord. What do you do? Well, a next step would be to make a sacred agreement or a covenant between each other and God to become a church. Now again, you you sit there and say, what? (laughs) Think about a marriage and the covenant to become one as an example. Well, first of all, what is a covenant? Right. It defines it, Webster defines it as to enter into a formal agreement, to stipulate, to bind oneself by contract and that's what a covenant is. You know, God this, did this in Eden with Adam and Eve. The covenant they made was to obey and live and enjoy the benefits of being a member of God's family. And this is what God did with Israel at the base of Mount Sinai when He spoke His laws unto them. He wrote them on two tables of stone showing how binding this covenant would be. Well, you know why the first two tables were broken? Remember, Moses comes down. Why did he break those two tablets? I mean, they were two tables of stone written God's own finger. Why would Moses break them? Because the children of Israel broke their agreement with God to obey and live. They broke the covenant, and so the stones were broken. The contract was ripped up, you could say, And God was not bound to keep it. But the people repented and the covenant was reestablished with new tables of stone. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the scripture in Joshua 24, 15. It says, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what's he saying? We're going to serve the Lord. So Joshua had first reminded them of all the good that the Lord had done for them, and then he made the call for a commitment, as we read here in verse 15. And when Israel answered the call and made a commitment to follow the Lord again, there was a covenant made. Look at verse 24. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So they agreed. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us. For it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall therefore a wit- it shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. See, there was a covenant made. As a witness. 
Now, many people have never studied much of the Advent movement and know the, the when the Seventh-day Adventist Church was first organized, each member signed a covenant. Do you know that? And I shared this with you before, I think in part one, but Jay in Loughborough, he writes this account. And this is, oh, it said it was in one of the reviews, October 15, 1861. On the sixth day of the month, it happened to be in October, the Michigan Conference was organized by ele- the election of a chairman, a secretary, and executive committee of three. By vote, the conference recommended that the churches organize adopting the following as a church covenant. We, the undersigned, hereby associate ourselves together as a church, taking the name Seventh-day Adventists, covenanting to keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. A committee was appointed to prepare an address formulating plans for organizing the churches. And this is a covenant that our church here has. Our church covenant reads... We, the undersigned, hereby associate ourselves together, taking the name Three Angels Sabbath Day Church, covenanting to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Very simple covenant. But we signed it. That means we're in it together. We've made a covenant together to form a church to the glory of God and to do service. When a husband and wife make vows to each other in front of witnesses, what are they doing? You see the example of the family? What are they doing? They're declaring that they agree to the terms of marriage and are covenanting to start a family, that they are responsible to each other to uphold their vows, that their vows are binding until the covenant is satisfied. You know, to death do us part. A church covenant shows that each party involved agrees to the terms of biblical order to start a family, a church family, and that they're responsible to each other to uphold their vows as members and that their vow is binding upon them until the agreement is satisfied. When would the agreement be satisfied? Well, really, the return of Jesus when we're all brought together for eternity. Amen? Now, you may have noticed that in all the examples that were used here, that I used for a covenant, that the organization had a name before there was a covenant. That's kind of a common sense thing. You've got to have a name. You know, look back in history. Adam and Eve, they had a name before they were brought together in a covenant. Israel. God actually changed His name before making the covenant. Seventh-day Adventists, they chose a name. I could go into the history of that. They were wanting to name, quickly I'll just say they were wanting to have a name for the publishing house and one of the gentlemen there said it seems to me if we named us as a people we'd have a name for anything else we wanted to do. And so they took some time and then they came out with Seventh-day Adventists because there were first-day Adventists didn't believe the Sabbath message and there were other Adventists and they wanted to distinguish themselves. You see. We chose Three Angels Sabbath Day Church after several months of study. Of course, we were threatened by the General Conference for using the name Seventh-day Adventist, so you know we had to, to make a change, and we believe God led us to this name. A name is necessary for a covenant. That's the point I'm trying to make here. It shows exactly who is involved in the agreement and identifies the organization. See, The family has a name. The custom is, though, in today's world, they don't do it that as often, the wife takes the husband's name, becoming one with him. The church is to have a name. So when you form a church, there must be very careful consideration made so as to convey who you are and not cause confusion. And there are principles involved in choosing a name. We went back and looked at all the history, the principles used, that were laid out in the choosing of the Seventh-day Adventist name. And by the way, friends, it wasn't something... There's another quote that says God gave us that name, and it's taken out of context. They voted on that name. You don't vote on a name God gives you. (laughs) 
So, you know, I could go on about that. But, but I'll tell you that the Advent pioneers thought long and hard about a name. There was much debate about it before one was chosen. So this is something that the group would need to prayerfully study and, and pray and consider before coming to an agreement. But there must be a name chosen for that local church. Uh, a standard to show the world who you are as a you know a group of believers. And what would be nice, you know, uh, would be churches come together and we we have a name that that identifies all of us. You know, our plans are that we're. We're to go out and make disciples. So we're going to be planting churches and they'll have this name. You know, we're the Lafayette Church. There's the Battle Creek Church. It can be the, you know, the Atlanta Church or the whatever church, Chicago Church, the, you know, Danville Church. This is how the pioneers did it. And I'll tell you, there's a good lesson about this and how God organized the Hebrews around the sanctuary. The people who are against organizing is just, there's too much evidence in the Bible for it. The Hebrew camp was arranged in exact order. It was separated into three great divisions. I encourage you to study it. Each division has its, had its appointed position in the encampment. In the center was the tabernacle, of course, and that was the abiding place of God. God is to be the center of our life, friends. And around it was stationed the priests and the Levites. They served God. They had more responsibility to, to serving God and, and others. And beyond these were encamped all the other tribes. They were about two-thirds of a mile away from the center. And then, even among the Levites, Levites were separated into three divisions. The descendants of the three sons of Levi, see, and each were assigned their special position of work. Some of them took care of all the uh, uh, the the uh, utensils and stuff. Some of them took care of all the music. Some it is just remarkable, really. And in front of the tabernacle, and nearest to it, were the tents of Moses and Aaron. And. And the reason I bring this up, I guess, is the position of each tribe also was specified. Each was to march and encamp beside its own standard. That's what the Lord commanded. So a name is a standard. So it's a very serious thing when you're considering a name. It's a standard you're going to put out front for the world to see. In Numbers 2, verse 2, it says, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house. Far off about uh, the tabernacle of congregation shall they pitch. Verse 17 says, As they encamp, so shall they set forward every man in his place by their standards. That identified who they were. And that's the important thing about that part. Ellen White makes this statement here in Testimonies to Ministers, page 26 that I shared before. It said, to provide for the support of the ministry. So why do we need to organize, friends? To provide for the support of the ministry, for carrying the work in new fields, for protecting both the churches and the ministry from unworthy members, for holding church property, for the publication of the truth through the press, for many other objects, organization was indispensable. Choosing an appropriate name is a part of gospel order. It's your standard. And the reason I say we should come together as churches and, and part of that unity would be having a collective name. So sometime, who knows, I can't predict the future, but at some time we may be able, as we organize as churches, there will be a name chosen. may not have this name or may have our name. We don't know. But what have we learned so far, in a nutshell, as I close up? First, and this is in comparing you know, family organization with church organization. First, the Christian family is a church. That's what we learned, isn't it? Another thing we learn, family order teaches about church order. Have we not seen that? 
The third thing we've learned, family and church are organized for service. That's what the organization's for, to save souls. Fourth thing, the church is to be a representative form of order. We're all brethren. We're not to be a hierarchy, congregational anarchy. The fifth thing is that we're to be united in faith and doctrine. This is what it means to organize as a people. The sixth thing is we're to have a name. And the seventh, we're to covenant together. We vow to God and each other. We're committed. And we'll get into other areas of order such as you know, leadership qualifications, membership responsibilities, finances, those kinds of things very soon as we, we get a little bit more specific. I'm talking about principles right now. I'll close up by uh, the words of Paul with the words of Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you, are, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for this Holy Sabbath day. We thank you that we've had an opportunity to come together and praise you and sing together, fellowship with like saints, like believers. It's refreshing to be in the house of the Lord on a Sabbath day. We pray, Lord, as we study these things out, that we will come into a knowledge of the truth. And as we get better organized, they will be organized, we will be organized upon your foundational principles that we can have that unity and the latter rain can be poured out upon us. Please be with those who are ill, those who have health issues. I thank you for being very near to me my family. I pray that you be with those who are hearing some of these things and these principles for the first time. Help them, Lord, to have a right understanding that we can be your united people and hasten the Lord's return. We thank you for hearing this prayer as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.